Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Project Zion podcast. My name is Carla Long, and I am your host for the series Percolating on Faith. And today, we are going to talk about something that truly percolates your faith, I believe. We're going to be talking about sex. Yes, Carla, do not insert a salt and pepper song. Do not insert a salt and pepper song. Anyway, sex. Let's talk about it. Let's do. <laughs> Let's do. Yes, gentle and kind listeners, today is a day you'll hear all about sex. That four-letter word that rarely gets spoken inside the hallowed walls of a church building. In other words, this ain't your mama's Sunday school lesson. <laughs> yes, I did work on that intro a little harder than I usually do. So um, today we're here with Tony and Charmaine Chavala-Smith. Welcome back, guys. Well, hello, hello. Hi. It is great to talk about sex with you. <laughs> it's, it's great to talk about sex anytime. Anytime. And you know what? I, actually, this is kind of a bucket list check off for me talking about sex with my two favorite theologians. How fun is that? <laughs> uh, that's that 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 is really, really fun, I would say. It really fun. I mean, I do have a weird bucket list, but I'm checking this off today. So, wow. Talking about sex with theologians. I don't know if anyone ever thought that they might be doing this. So it could be an interesting day. I, um, so, guys, I'm going to start really a really easy question for you, and I'm going to say, why in the world should we talk about sex in churches? What what would be the point of that? Mm -hmm. Ugh, the answers are mul so there's so many of them to talk about. One of them, and this is actually something um, a line I used in a sermon yes yesterday, um, though though we weren't talking about sex. Um, is that, right. <laughs> is that the God that we worship and the God that we are called by is not just a Sunday God. Um, our God is an everyday and an every night God. And uh, a God who is concerned and interested in all of who we are as human beings. And, I mean, that in itself is enough to say, why would we not have a whole dimension of ourselves? Um, as part of the conversation about, theolog about theology, um, part of the spiritual conversation about who we are as individuals. Back when I was working as a youth worker in uh, Flint, Michigan, uh, quite a number of years ago, we had <clears throat> a place where, where um, kids would get together on Saturday evening in a room in one of the um, the churches, the, they had set up a room for the youth to get together in. And we had, we started putting together a little library there and we had two or three pretty good books, um, on sex and sexuality that were written by some very progressive Christian writers. And you know what? Every Saturday night, that book was not on the shelf. And there would be, you know, usually a little group of girls, sometimes with guys there as well, um, talking about what was in the book. And it, there's just such a hunger, uh, particularly, I think, for children, youth, and young adults to say, well, where does this part of who I am fit into my life in the church, my life with God, my life with others? And maybe it's our purit puritanical background, but, um, you know, we have had a tendency to, to really veer away from that as though somehow it's not appropriate or it's too uncomfortable. But it's part of who we are. And uh, within our world, um, issues of human sexuality um, have, have really emerged in the last few decades, and if we let it, um, that provides people within Christianity a good place to begin the conversation or to continue the conversation about 
how do we let our sexual selves, that aspect of ourselves, be integrated into our whole life in Christ? Yeah, and what I would say to that, that question, in addition, is, first of all, um, at the center of Christianity is the principle, the act of incarnation, of the divine word becoming flesh and blood. Um, one of my theological mentors, the great 20th century, early 20th century Anglican theologian and Archbishop of Canterbury, um, William Temple, says that Christianity is the most materialistic of religions because it takes matter very seriously. And uh, I think that's a, a wonderful statement. Matter, meaning our flesh and blood reality, our this worldly reality is the reality that God shows us that God has claimed in Christ. And so right at the heart of Christianity is a principle which ought to have made us all along be interested in the topic of how sexuality fits in as part of our faith in our lives. So that's another reason why we should talk about this in church. Um, I think we could also add to that. Um, Christians have the same struggles with, issues with sex and sexuality. Everybody else has. Um, the, 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 church, <laughs> the churches are not places that are strangers to sexual issues, to you know, all the way from sexual misconduct to wondering what's appropriate for a Christian to do. Um, these questions are just there. They're part of our lived reality. So when we avoid those questions or when we respond to them only by saying, well, you can't think about that or talk about that, or, or you can't do X or Y because the Bible says so. We're not really taking, we're not really taking our faith seriously, or we're not taking um, our human reality seriously. Also, I might say another reason why we need to talk about this is that um, all Christian traditions have inherited uh, a, an older Hellenistic tradition of dualism that is separating body from spirit in a way that that biblical authors didn't imagine it. You know, in, in both Old and New Testament, you don't have a body, you are a body. And so what you what you do with your body is, you know, how you how you live bodily is really central to to ethical thought in both testaments. But some some kinds of radical weak influences uh, later on in Christianity um, tended to separate body and spirit so much that that uh, bodies came to be seen as a problem, <laughs> not not as the center or the locus of our actual life. So those are a bunch of reasons between us here that, that <coughs> we think uh, church is the perfect place to talk about sex. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and I was also thinking, Charmaine, you kind of touched on this when you were speaking about it, but I was kind of thinking that when we don't talk about it, that speaks really loudly as well. It, it turns sex into like the other, you know, something that's out there, something that, you know, we, we kind of put it on its own pedestal in some ways and make it mysterious. And so it becomes something that is maybe even a little bit more tempting to, to um, hide or to, you know, as something that might be a little bit bad. Yeah. So I, I, when we don't talk about it, that says a lot, I think. It does. And I think, again, especially to, to youth and young adults, where there may be implied, um, you know, things you shouldn't do or you mustn't do. But, but that's all that's said about sexual relationships. Um, and so there's this big gap for youth, especially, where there, if we don't talk about it at all, then there is the sense that um, this doesn't matter to God. This does, this part of who they are, um, <laughs> God is not aware of. And, and so in some of those really difficult choices that youth and young adults have to make, um, there's often a feeling of shame or embarrassment to, to be prayerful about it because somehow, well, you shouldn't have to, to, you know, these aren't things that you bring to God um, because no one has talked about them in relationship to God. So it, it puts um, many people in a really awkward pos 
situation that way. So, yeah, um, lots of things, you, like you said, once things are hidden, then they take on their own kind of secrecy. And whether it's in our hist early history of the church um, or whether it's in, in families today or, you know, in individuals' relationships, often um, sexuality goes right into the category of secrecy. And, and that's not okay because um, I've been working with youth for, well, as long as I've almost been alive uh, and, and it invariably comes up, say in the cabin uh, when you're getting ready to go to sleep. I think it comes up more in boys' cabins than it does in girls' cabins from what I hear, but people that, but my um, campers have asked about it and I never ever quite know how to answer questions. Do I answer them as a person? Do I answer them as a minister? Do I answer them as a counselor? And because in Community of Christ, we take uh, child protection very seriously, it's a really hard question. So what I'm hearing you say is that when we answer these questions, we answer them as all three. We answer them as a counselor, if, if you're in a camping situation, as a minister and as a person. But I, you just have to be so, I feel like you have to be so careful and be prepared for it, which is why it's important to talk about it. If you talk about it, you can prepare for it. And then you can be ready to answer with appropriate answers and be ready for those questions, even though they make you a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's just like with anything in the theological world, if you haven't thought about it and you haven't heard it talked about, you don't have a language to talk about it or to draw it into the rest of your theology. Um, and so it, it takes practice. It takes and it takes hearing it. And I think that's the thing that that youth are so hungry for is to hear someone talk about um, this natural part of who we are, our sexuality, in ways that remove it from shame, that remove it from secrecy, that in a very matter-of-fact say, a matter-of-fact way say, this is who we are. And, you know, these are things that we can expect um, in different parts of our lives. You know, this is, uh, we, we can understand what our, what's happening in our body. We can, we can then, once we can acknowledge that what's happening in our body is normal and natural, then we can also have the freedom to engage our minds in as far as making decisions. And quite often, those two things get separated for um, young people who are exploring relationships. And they tend to think that what is happening physically is the whole truth not recognizing that they have, um, if they understand themselves, how they're, how they're thinking and decisions they may want to make um, are also as, as real and that they don't have to simply be at the mercy of their hormones or the heat of the moment. So, yeah, it's, it's really important to give all ages language to talk about this aspect of our physicality, but it's more than that because uh, our sexuality is connected to our spirituality. It's connected to our images of male and female, um, of roles and identity too. So it's, it's really important. I, you know, I think too, it's, it's important for us to say that there's a lot of dishonesty in the church about sexuality. Uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've been in youth camp settings where there, you know, where we have some kind of chats class or something like that in the evenings usually, and and questions about sex and sexuality always come up. And what's what's interesting to me is to hear the parents who are present, who are maybe on staff at a camp, uh, whom I know personally had sexual experience before they were were married. Uh, you know, immediately go to the thou shalt not, you mustn't do this. And so um, I think kids are always onto that dishonesty. I think they suspect, <laughs> they, they suspect that. And so uh, even within the, even within the church's own culture, we've, we've often not, we've often not had good ways to be honest about, about, uh, you know, 
you know, like ad- adults have not typically had had ways to be honest about their own sexual experience uh, when they're working with youth. And so there's kind of this secret double standard. Um, you know, the, the, the adult knows what he or she was involved in as a teenager or a young adult, but they somehow feel this automatic obligation uh, because of the church culture to say, you must not do that. And I tend to think that kids often smell a rat there. <laughs> and we do kind of go back to that. Um, I want the Bible to back me up here. Just uh, a couple years ago, uh, when I was in seminary, uh, a good friend of mine was teaching a class at a reunion for junior high and high schoolers. And she came up to me and she said, Carla, where in the Bible does it talk? Does it forbid premarital sex? And I was like, I don't. I don't think it does. I don't think that's what it says. But she's like, no, it has to say that. I'm like, I'm not, I don't think that it does. She's like, it has to say that because I want to say that. I'm like, well, <laughs> you can say, I guess what you want to say, but I don't think that's what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that at all. So anyway, we want, we want something to back us up and say premarital sex is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And then this is the way you should be. And it's just not the way it is. What we require is open and honest conversation, which is really, really hard for a lot of people to do, myself included. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I agree. Scripture is often used not as the primary source of understanding, but as ammunition. <laughs> and, you know, we already talked about Scripture and, you know, some of, the, some of the bad ways it's used and some of the better ways it can be used. And, you know, I completely agree with you there is that, that the Bible really doesn't say anything about this. In our cultural setting. People want to find something um, that they can use, but that that does a dis- injustice to the Bible as well as to the issue, um, mm-hmm. because then we are using guilt, uh, guilt from God, um, as a way to control people. Yeah. And espe- especially in the areas of sexuality, that has often a lifelong impact that is not positive. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I think part of our issue here is that there's there's still a working assum- working assumption that the the Bible, number one, is a book. Well, it's not a book, right? It's a library. We've talked about that before. Another assumption is that the Bible somehow has within it a ready-made sexual ethic <laughs> that somehow applies to all time. And I find that very peculiar because... If you were to read through the many books of the library called the Bible, you would find a whole array of sexual practices and marriage practices, none of which you would want to teach youth to do. Right? <laughs> oh, so, and they don't agree with each other. Either. You know, so um, we, we have to be careful here to, to uphold our best standards of biblical interpretation. The Bible, the Bible is not simply a rule book that you, you, can, you can just drop on a situation and say the Bible says, because look, the Bible doesn't say anything until we make it say things. And um, the, the the Bible runs the, f- the full gamut on sexuality. Um, also, you know, on the issue of, for example, premarital sex, people say, well, that's what, that's what fornication is. Look, in the New Testament, the Greek word porneia, that we get the English word fornication from, refers first and foremost to prostitution. And so in our context, when we're talking about premarital sex, um, it, it bears no relationship, uh, whatever, to um, marriage practices, for example, in the Greco-Roman world or in the ancient Near Eastern world, where in most cases, uh, kids were pledged by parents to each other, um, where there is no dating scene or anything like that. It's it's a totally different world. Um, and when, when youth and young adults talk about the issue of premarital sex, um, the the term the term fornication really doesn't even have any relevance to that because we're not talking about prostitution, right? We're talking about something quite different related to to modern and postmodern context. And so we have to learn we have to learn to read read scripture way more intelligently and sensitively on these issues. And especially, you know, working with the idea that there is no there is no just uh, one size fits all ethic within the Bible. We, we have to think carefully about our use of scripture, especially in, in, uh, in the area of human sexuality. We definitely do. And 
uh, just, uh, I want to move on to more community of Christ and the way community of Christ views sexuality. But before we do, I want to give a little anecdote of what happened once at a junior high camp that I was at. We encouraged the kids to write up whatever question they wanted to ask and put it into this basket anonymously. And then we would do our best to answer these questions. And, you know, cause if one kid's wondering about it, the other ones are probably worrying about or wondering about it too. So I remember one question was specifically about what does first base, second base, third base and home run mean in a sexual context. And so we discussed that. And then later on that night, a girl pulled me aside and she said, now Carla, when they're talking about second base, are they really talking about baseball? And I'm like, <laughs> obviously you didn't listen at all. <laughs> she was very confused. And the thing is, I think we psych ourselves out when we, when we talk about sex with, um, with high schoolers or junior high kids, I think we kind of think that they're really asking about something that's way too much. And we think our brains go in a thousand different directions when really they're just like, are we talking about baseball or not? <laughs> I think I think it's also important to, to to note on that that some of this is peculiarly American. I think Good point. Europeans I know have a totally different framework for this. That's that's not um, shaped by Puritanism and evangelicalism and so on. They have a completely different framework, and I think your European kids have they know a lot more, and they know a lot more from their parents and from school and from school and there's not there are not these knee-jerk phobias in in school districts about about sexuality and so on i i think it's we have to claim this as a as what we're talking about is a peculiarly american problem yeah it's fun to to watch otherwise articulate people and and ourselves at times as well that you know we can be articulate about all kinds of other things but when it comes to talking about sex uh we be we become giggling 13 year olds. <laughs> yes. Actually, yes. That probably we, uh, you know, we talked about this before Carla, but the listeners might be, um, find it funny to, to know that we realize that as we're talking about sexuality, um, today, that there's going to be lots of things that we say that, that will bring a chuckle because of the, the double entendres that could come along with it. So, um, so for the listener, feel free to chuckle whenever that happens, uh, since it's still one of those self-conscious things that is part of our culture, because we're not really comfortable talking about sexuality. And so all the little phrases that are euphemisms for different <laughs> kinds of um, interactions uh, make us giggle. Like oh, did she just say interaction? <laughs> ah, yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> So anyhow, permission given to chuckle. Uh, Absolutely. We, we think of this podcast as a Freudian field day. <laughs> <laughs> so enjoy, listeners. Enjoy. <laughs> so I wanted to get to a more um, specifically community of Christ, because I know I get a lot of questions about um, sexuality and community of Christ and what we believe and what we think and how we um, are in certain questions and certain realms. So let's talk a little bit about our maybe our enduring principles. What is the relationship of community of Christ values and principles like the worth of persons, responsible choices? How is that related to the issues of um, human sexuality? I think a good place to start there would be to say, as a church, we are, we are moving away from rule-based ethics to a principle-based ethic. That is, when you think of Christian ethics in terms of rules, um, then you start thinking in terms of lists of things you should and shouldn't do. Before long, what happens with, with lists of rules is that you lose the sense, first of all, that the gospel of Jesus is, first of all, about an incredible gift. And it's only secondly about tasks and responses. So, you, so moving towards principles then helps us uh, as a church, think about things like sexuality in light of the larger grace and love of God. That's really, really important. So that's a starting point. Another place, another framing of all this is that community of Christ's message and identity, and especially our journey over the past 40 or 50 years, has been a journey towards a church that will live in a liberative freeing way, 
because we we want to help create on earth societies of justice, peace, equity, in which human beings are are allowed to flourish and are valued as beloved children of God. Um, in other words, we're talking about the the reign of God. That's the larger framing for for our enduring principles, um, and I think that that helps a lot with this particular set of, of issues. In other words, we want to see sexuality in light of the large the larger concern of what what is a what is a human being, what makes human communities flourish, what are principles that that allow us to live in in ways that honor human beings to the you know in, in their fullness, in their entirety. So that's a starting point for me. Yeah, I agree. Good. Well, oh, go ahead, Charmaine. Say it was good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it is good stuff. Well, I, you know, one of the reasons that it's this question is really important is that as a community of Christ minister, I get asked about these things, and I felt like my last answer of, well, it's all about responsible choices, was really weak. And so I, I'm so happy to have a way to talk about this, a way to frame this, because. Really, what I think people are asking is, will God condemn me if I have sex before marriage? And basically, can I do it or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, what What does the church say? And I and so it's really important to talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah, and and it, but it is one of those places where we really can't say, well, the church says such and such. Right, we can't because because of that not being first and foremost rule based. And, and that really gives lots of room for, for the nuances of relationships. But it, it does take, uh, I think, a lot of, I, I, think, I think it takes a lot more work intellectually and spiritually to be part of a community that says, actually, what we're going to work with is principles, and we're going to give you those as tools and a community context in which to think about these issues but responsible choices wouldn't be choices if we were making them for you, right? <laughs> you know, um, so uh, it's it's not it's not as easy a place to to you know live to live from when we say we're we're not going to give you thou shalt and thou shalt nots. And by the way, the, the the places that do give kids and youth and young adults and older adults lists of rules have to deal all the time with the fact that nobody keeps the rules. <laughs> right. So, so in other words, a principle-based ethic that works around um, things like worth of persons and responsible choices and what makes for a mutual relationship, that's more complex. But you know what? Life is complex, so I think it fits that. So. That's right. And when uh, an organization has all of these rules that you have to follow – the problem is you have to keep coming up with more and more and more rules, and there will never be as many rules as there are ways to get around them. Yeah. And and so, I mean, you really paint yourself into a corner when you say we have all the answers and these are the rules that you must follow in order to get into heaven or in order to be a member of our church or in order to be a good person because things are changing, continually changing all the time. <laughs> and it's hard to keep up with the amount of rules that we need to start following if that's how we are. So thank goodness that's not how we are, except we have to, as Community of Christ members, have to think really deeply about our enduring principles and what they mean to us. So, you know, just recently for Community of Christ, actually, these things really came to the forefront in section 164 of our Doctrine and Covenants. We started talking, oh my goodness, out loud about some of these issues that have been a part of who we are for many, many years, if not decades. So in section 164, we, um, in Community of Christ, started talking about the need to uh, have better language to talk about LGBTQIA plus people. Uh, And so... Uh, I want to, our, our president, President Vizi, was really, um, he really came forward with some, with some really hard stuff for us to talk about. So a couple of years ago, we really had to start talking about this in Community of Christ because it came as an inspired counsel to us, which later became section 164 in our Doctrine and Covenants. And we, we had to get to a place where we had to have better language when we spoke about people and their sexuality and, um, This is what section 164.5 says. 
It is imperative to understand that when you are truly baptized into Christ, you become part of a new creation. By taking on the life and mind of Christ, you increasingly view yourselves and others from a changed perspective. Former ways of defining people by economic status, social class, sex, gender, or ethnicity are no longer primary. Through the gospel of Christ, a new community of tolerance, reconciliation, unity and diversity and love is being born as a visible sign of the coming reign of God. So for us, that really brought to the forefront these, these conversations we had to have about sexuality and about, you know, even the ordination of women and the male patriarchy, which we still find ourselves in, even in 2016. So we had to start talking about them, right? Right. And, and you are right. We have been talking about this in one way or another for decades. And really, in, in many ways, um, a new beginning of talking about this started <clears throat> back in the 60s and 70s, the 1960s and 70s, um, with what has been called the sexual revolution. This is one of those places where development in a culture really helped to open up um, religious people's minds and eyes. And so what happened within our church and many other churches <clears throat> is that in the 1960s and 70s, with this um, reaction by what we now call the baby boomer um, generation to some of the mores and the, the rules, of the day opened up this whole new way of understanding who we are sexually as well as uh, as human beings and so out of that time period came not only renewed civil rights protests and in, in wanting to affirm the worth of all people but also um, women's liberation um, and again, as I said earlier, sexual revolution, uh, a reclaiming of the human person in many ways, but in, including sex, sexuality. And some really important things happened in that time. And some people say, why are you going back through history? And I think uh, hopefully I'll be able to, to show how it affects where we are now. But things like the pill, um, so oral contraception that then made um, made some choices available to women that weren't available to them in the past as far as their sexual life and um, sexual relationships. These are choices that men had had for a very long time, and now women had some choices uh, as far as how and when um, they were involved in sexual relationships and what the outcome would be. Um, as one a young adult woman that I met said of one of her professors um, about who, who was teaching on women's liberation was, uh, she's, the teacher had said um, that the power to decide if and when you will have children you should never give up. And women in this time, in the 60s and 70s, became um, empowered. They realized that they did not have to be dependent on the system that told them that, that their value came from who they were married to or, or how many children they had. And so there was a lot of things in this time that in gave a whole generation and then those watching that generation emerge new eyes kind of like putting on a new set of glasses uh, lenses that gave new ways of seeing reality and during that time women began to put into words some of the ways in which they had been oppressed by a society um, who you know as much as we would want to think of um, Western society as being, you know, open-minded and progressive, there were still many ways in which women were still considered the property of men. Um, 
you know, it's still there's still vestiges of it in traditional wedding services, and the idea that uh, a woman that in a marriage uh, a man's satisfaction was what mattered, uh, not necessarily the woman's, whether that was socially or sexually, and so all of this new way of seeing things helped women in the culture, but also within churches to start verbalizing some of the ways in which they had been told and were being told that they were of lesser worth in all, all kinds of realms within the RLDS church, now Community of Christ. One of the places that women uh, coalesced, some women who were wanting to challenge the way things were, was in the area of ordination, questioning, well, why, why would women not be as qualified as men to do these things? And so, you know, some things that began in the culture translated very well into, into the church, and I think really provided us with some foundation for beginning to talk about justice within the church. And so women's awareness was raised um, and their ability to um, support each other in saying, in questioning, in questioning a male dominated um, institution that liked it that way. But the whole culture didn't much of the culture didn't realize how male dominated it was, how patriarchal, how everything revolved around a man or men, um, and even the language we would use where we talked about a human being, we talked about man, and women had to kind of do this mental calisthenics to try and figure out how do I fit into this language, and so the 60s, 70s, and 80s were just a in some ways, a really tumultuous time in the culture and within the church, but a really revealing time because we now had new eyes as women to see who we were and that we, um, that our relationship with God, our prayers, our acts of service um, were just as valuable as a man's was. But you know, even in the debates about ordination of women, it's really it's really so informative because I remember one of the arguments that was offered about why women shouldn't be ordained came out of this fear of women's sexuality because within the culture, women tended to be seen as most first and foremost sexual beings. Um, and there was a great deal of discomfort with that. And so this argument against ordination of women was, it was a scare tactic. It was, well, you know, this was towards other women. Would you want your husband going on a priesthood visit with another woman? And it just, huh, huh. it revealed so much. It's like, um, it sees women as a, you know, women as a threat, not trustworthy because of their sexuality. And it sees males as not able to make responsible choices themselves if there's a woman around. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so it's things like this that reveal all of these hidden messages that had just been taken in, you know, absorbed in the culture. But this, this uprising of new thought and challenge in the 60s and 70s gave lots of people new eyes for seeing. It also, <laughs> as often happens when there's development culturally, is that then there becomes a reaction. And it's actually during this time of sexual discovery, not just for women, but for um, gay and lesbian people who are beginning to find a voice and finding people who are... Um, courageously standing up and claiming who they are, there, there's a whole new um, awareness of, of what equality really means and what it means to embrace who you are sexually. But whenever that happens, 
there's almost always a reaction. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way to see that reaction, there's other ways this happened too, but with the rise of the religious right. And its primary goal was to maintain the status quo, to, to undo these new understandings and to maintain uh, sexual power over women, over um, people that had in the past had to hide who they were, um, to turn back reproductive choice. And it's still going on. Um, and, and that whole idea of women being um, less than and more the property of men. So, you know, there's always, whenever there's a movement forward, there's a reaction. And we can see both of those things. So out of that milieu, um, our prophets, presidents, and the, the body itself began to sense that, that God was calling us to some uncomfortable new places. And that included being willing to talk about sex and sexuality and to be open to God's calling to all people. Um, and so I don't know if that, but that gives a little bit of a, um, a context in that leads up to, to where we are that has, it's been a difficult time. There have been some people um, who, who didn't benefit from the conversations in the 60s and 70s, either who, who didn't know how to, real discomfort with language for people who didn't grow up talking about this. Um, and, and so the, you know, the term generation gap um, created its own kind of gap in the church uh, when it came to topics of sexuality and, uh, some of that persists today. So anyhow, those are some of the, the things that have both um, expanded our understanding of who we are in God's sight, um, but also of each other. Does that help? Absolutely. I, it's, I think it's really important then to frame all of this in the context of a larger of a larger struggle and the larger struggle is the struggle against oppressive structures that demean and degrade people and one of the most difficult of these structures to to deal with is the structure Charmaine just, just described as patriarchy um, you know pat patriarchy is the assumed dominance of males and in in the American context it's the assumed dominance of white males over all things current current reactiveness in American society is is uh, probably based on awareness that that patriarchy uh, is is the emperor who's been shown to have no clothes and it's it's not just the way things are eternally meant to be and so the, the people who benefit from patriarchy react against it being shown up for what it is, an oppressive structure, and they, they go to great and nasty lengths to defend it and propagate it. But uh, it is a humanly created structure. It's not the essence of things. And by the way, can I, think, can I think as a Trinitarian theologian for a second and just say, look, the, the, the divine constitutive of the divine being is mutuality mutuality among three co-equal persons there's not one who is above the other in the divine being and um, if the church is meant to live out of the revelation of god in christ by the spirit then the church should be the place where mutuality um, where unity in diversity is most visible and most practiced so anyway this is all of these issues about sex and sexuality, I think, you know, can be framed like Charmaine framed it very well, which is as part of the struggle against patriarchy. And, and while, while patriarchy, patriarchy is still, 
a problem in, in many places and in community of Christ in some ways as well. Um, it, you know, I am of the generation that has certainly profited from, uh, the section 156 in the doctrine of covenants that talks about the ordination of women in 1984, because I was only seven years old when that came out. And my mother was almost immediately ordained to be a priest. And so for a majority of my life, I have grown up with um, women in the priesthood. I have never known, really remember a time when women weren't up front giving sermons, uh, being a part of the leadership of congregations. So there really hasn't been, so my generation, so the people in their 30s and early 40s are people who have seen really what it means to be a, a church that is fully inclusive of women, which is really exciting. I've never known a time when my voice wasn't accepted and appreciated and wanted in my congregation in Mapleton, Kansas. So for that, I'm really grateful for, you know, the pain and the struggle that people went through in 1984 in community of Christ, at least to have that full inclusion of women in the priesthood. Now, do we still have a long way to go in, in other regards? Of course we do. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things that hopefully, um, being open to being a prophetic people can help us with because we all have blind spots. And I think maybe that's one of the bigger challenges for, for Carla, for your generation and the generations after you is that yes, some headway was made on um, the awareness of women as full human beings in the sixties and seventies and within the church through ordination but there are still many, many, um, hmm, both overt and covert messages about uh, who women are and aren't, and and for other groups within the society as well, whether it be gay and lesbian or transgender people, or people of different nationalities, or um, people of different racial backgrounds, there are still so many blind spots that we have as a society. And sometimes it gets harder to see when we think we've made big steps <laughs> uh, because we, we tend to want to think we're there. But there's still so much to be learned and so many doors to keep opening to God and to each other as we continue to explore what it means to help each other be fully human and to be to for them to know that they are fully loved by God. And uh, yeah, so the following generations still have lots of, of revealing to, to do. Maybe I can give just a little example from our own life of where we constantly see uh, this, this blind spot still in the church's life. So most people who know Charmaine and me know we do a lot of ministry together as a team and you would be surprised at the number of times in a given year when we have been invited together to come to this or that event to minister together. And yet, who do you suppose the people email and don't email when they're trying to pass on information about the event? Right. Right. Or sometimes even whose name gets left off the bulletin. <laughs> ah. uh, it's not mine. And this is this is people who know we work together, who invited us to come together. And yet very, very often we're having to send an email and say, look, we're doing this together. Could you please include Charmaine in the in the CC line or in the address line? Um, it's it's amazing how much a blind spot that still is. There's this tendency to think, yes, we're, we're having Charmaine and Tony come. And what they're seeing is the mail coming. And they're not even aware of that. And so um, there's there's lots and lots of progress yet to make. We're we we've we've come this far by faith, but we've got journeying yet to do. <laughs> For sure. And I think Charmaine, what you were saying earlier is um, a really big call to us as a prophetic people. That you know, you're right. I feel like, hey, we have done a great job. It's so fun to look back and be like, thank goodness we're not like those people back there who didn't <laughs> think women could do anything. We are so enlightened. We are so, we know everything that God is calling us to do. But where, where um, 
are my little itchy places. Oh no. Was that a double entendre? <laughs> where, where are the places that really kind of, um, make me feel uncomfortable that I'm not willing to go there, uh, yet. So, so you're right. What are those places that perhaps the millennials are dealing with that I do not even want to think about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we still, you know, we still have to, with all that, come back to where we started this conversation. You know, how do we actually talk about sex? Um, because within this larger context of patriarchy and gender equality and mutuality, unity and diversity, we're still, we still have to deal with practical questions about, <laughs> you know, what can and can't you do? That's that it often comes to that with, with lots of, of people. And I think you, you referenced DNC 164 earlier, and I, I love uh, uh, paragraph six after that, after what you read about how, you know, you know, Christ-like love, mutual respect, responsibility, justice, covenant, faithfulness. These these are the things that need to guide our relationships and our sex and our sexuality, um, and that you know choices, behaviors that are based on selfishness or irresponsibility, or you know um, greed, greed, getting what right? I want. I think I think. The, 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 text, the text uses the word uh, promiscuous or promiscuity, but I think you can insert the word greed. I think greed is a good word for that. Um, wanting, wanting something for me um, or, you know, behaviors that degrade or abuse other people. That's, that's where we need to be able to focus and, and to enter into conversations always with, with each other and with youth, with young adults and so on about, you know, you you have to you have to become spiritually sensitive and attuned to um, your your own uh, misbegotten selfish desires, right? Um, not all not all sexual activity is based on selfishness, but some of it is. And so, how do you how do you kind of think about that and reflect on that? And and then create relationships that aren't based on that that have that mutuality and respect and that sense of responsibility for each other and, um, and justice, um, that there is equality within the relationship. Um, and you know, the, where does covenant come in? What is it that we are saying to each other about our, our relationships, about our sexual relationships? What does that mean, um, to have, to have faithfulness, not just, um, you know, not having another sexual part partner, but what's the bigger meaning of a relationship that's based on faithfulness? I mean, those are all questions that wherever you are, whoever you are, these are important questions about our relationships, sexual or other aspects of the relationship as well. And these are things we can talk about with all ages, I think. Yeah, and it takes... A great amount of maturity, doesn't it? I mean, it takes a, a, like what we've been talking about, it takes someone who's not afraid to start these conversations and to have these conversations and not maybe, you know, have a few giggles along the way, but not giggle their way through it. Um, Because in order to be a prophetic people, um, we need to understand what sexuality is to us, as well as what it means perhaps to someone else. I was just... Uh, oh gosh, I was on Pinterest the other day and I came across this quote that I think kind of has a little bit to do with maybe what we're talking about here being what it means to be a prophetic people in community of Christ. It, the quote is, I don't even know who says it. Maybe I should find it. The quote is privilege is when you think something is not a problem because it's not a problem to you personally. Wow. (laughs) That's perfect. That is. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I, I am okay with where I'm at in my relationship, my, um, with my husband, but maybe somebody else isn't. And so even though I'm okay, I need to make sure other people are okay too. That's what it means to be a community. That's what it means to be a community that follows Christ. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's really nicely said because, um, too often we want to look at justice and injustice through our particular comfort level. And, you know, you said it takes takes maturity to talk about these. 
but sometimes it also takes reckless abandon um, to just be really honest with each other, even when it's awkward, <laughs> you know, even when we're not sure if we've got the words just right. Sometimes it's about exploring these topics of talking about sexuality by, by simply launching into, into the discussion and breaking down some of those bar those boundaries, those barriers that um, we maybe inherited that say, oh, we shouldn't talk about these things or these are too embarrassing or <clears throat> and when we we do have encounters like you were talking about um, with the high school class or with uh, junior hires, we realize that these these are these can be life-altering conversations in a good way because there are so many people, so many young people, who for lack of this kind of a conversation and for lack of someone respecting them or trusting that they, that they can get it, um, have been left in situations where, mm -hmm. where they have been victims where they have been uh, where they don't know they have choices they don't know that they are a value separate from um, value given to them by someone else whether that's through <clears throat> attention uh, you know a, a negative kinds of attention or or uh, inappropriate sexual attention so not talking about this <clears throat> is I think far more dangerous than and talking about Absolutely. it in awkward ways, and and we'll only get better at not being awkward the more we do it. I I just totally agree with that. I I think you know it, we have to ask ourselves. All right, so there's risks involved to the church in talking about sexuality and sexual ethics, but what are the risks of not talking about it? Mm -hmm. Right, and so um, you know, uh, sex and sexuality are part of our humanity, and they can be really you know, uh, joyful, life-affirming, um, delightful experiences. But also, sexuality is a place where where people can get completely broken and, and abused, and it, it, they, it, it's, it has the potential for destructiveness in people's life. And if the church is not, if the church says that the risks are too great to, to talk about uh, sexuality in terms of the church's current uh, views of ethics and so on, then we we may be complicit in bringing harm to people too. Well, and, and not only harm, but communicating to people that they are invisible. And this is this is a blind spot that, as a church, we've really only um, become aware of in the last two or three decades. And and that is with people who. Um, are struggling with their sexual identity. And this is often uh, a life and death issue. Mm -hmm. um, can I be who I am? Can Is who I am okay? Is who I am um, someone who can be loved by God and by others? And these are questions that we've learned to recognize are out there and I think um, some of the decisions the church has made in just the last um, four years have helped to us to say this is important this is a blind spot we couldn't see before and now um, we can and we need to be not only um, making changes in our policies, but we need to be finding ways to talk about this so that um, people who are struggling, people who are just becoming aware of their sexual identity have a safe place to come and worship, to know that they are loved by God and by others, mm -hmm. and to come into their full being. If we're, if we're going to sing with joy, uh, for everyone born a place at the table, and we're going to mean that in our communal life, then I, I just say a, a big a big amen to what Charmaine just said. We have lots of work yet to do. 
We do. We do indeed. Um, and listeners, if you have comments or questions about this podcast, it seems like to me, we actually have a lot more to say. And so we might need you to help guide the next conversation that we have about sex. Maybe there's something that has been troubling you. Maybe you have questions, specific questions about sexuality and community of Christ. I think that Tony and Charmaine and I would be open to the idea of perhaps another podcast about it. If, if you would mm-hmm. like that, if you would want that, if you have something that we didn't talk about that you thought that we should talk about. <laughs> so anyway, please, um, come with questions and comments on the project Zion podcast at project Zion podcast.org. And, uh, we can talk about it. Tony and Charmaine, we're actually coming to the close of our, our hour. Is there something that you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to say or uh, a point that you wanted to reiterate before we sign off? There may be, and I'll give Tony a minute to think about that. While I recommend uh, a few places people might want to go to read a little further. Absolutely. If you want to know a little bit more about the immersion, emergence of um, ordination of women in the church, a really easy place to go, a really good place to go, is Dick Howard's um, two-volume history uh, called The Church Through the Years, and in the second volume, chapter 35, is on kind of how this all happened in a, in a historical perspective in the church. It's, it's a very nice chapter. Another book to, that helps um, to give people an, uh, a way of understanding how cultural changes give us new lenses for seeing the places where God may be calling us. Um, and this is in particular, uh, it's a book that was written, I believe, in the 80s, and it's called Woman's Reality. <clears throat> the author is Anne Wilson Schaefe. <clears throat> and basically, this is a it's this real easy read, but it really gets into the idea of there being different kinds of realities, and, but also identifying, um, she would call it the white male reality, that that is the, has been the, the dominant reality, that, ha, that other groups, whether they be women or people of other um, racial backgrounds, have, have tried to either um, form themselves to so they're acceptable in the white male reality or that have also challenged that reality as they become aware of their worth. Um, anyhow, it's an easy read, Woman's Reality. Also, um, Rosemary Radford Ruther and Elizabeth Johnson uh, are really good authors to read on the emergence of uh, women's women liber- women's liberation, but also um, women and theology, and and where that is, has come. Elizabeth Johnson's book, She Who Is, might be a good read for those who want to go a little bit deeper. So while Charmaine's suggesting books, I have a book I'd like to suggest to people. It's called The Song of Solomon or The Song of Songs. <laughs> Ooh. It's, it's uh, Joseph Smith Jr. notwithstanding, it actually does belong in the Hebrew canon of the Bible. <laughs> um, it is a collection of ancient Near Eastern erotic love poetry. And it's so erotic, in fact, that uh, in Jewish tradition first, but then subsequently in Christian tradition, it was constantly uh, allegorized. <laughs> Both Jewish and Christian thinkers read this in their Bibles, in their, in their, you know, in, in the case of Jews, in the, in the Jewish Bible, in the case of Christians in their Old Testament, they read it there and they thought, "Oh my Lord, what am I supposed to do with this?" <laughs> and so they said, "I know this. This is this is really all metaphor about God's relationship with Israel or with the Church, when in fact." This is about two young lovers who are not identified as being married, um, finding <laughs> delight in each other and finding all kinds of lovely metaphors for, for each other's special parts, we'll say. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. We, we often have our Old Testament students, our undergrad students, read it. And you would be surprised at how, how young adults who 
probably know way more than I did when I was 18 or 19, how they blush when they read this book in the Bible. <laughs> and I, I think it's really important that this book is in the Bible. And I think it could be one of several starting places to talk about sexuality inside of a framework of Christian thought. So please, listeners, go read Song of Songs. <laughs> I cannot be responsible for what happens after you read it. <laughs> Tony, I literally think we've just lost all of our viewers because everyone's like, I have a book of erotica in my house right now. I'm going to go check it out. <laughs> this, this has been a lovely topic to talk about, though. We're grateful for the, for the opportunity to, to do this. So. And, and many thanks to you, Carla, and to Robin uh, for, for ideas and questions and, and places to, to go. There, as you say, there's so much more that could be said and perhaps needs to be said, but uh, it's it's great to explore this topic in the context of what does it mean to be the church today. Absolutely, and I like I like I think we all think it really is just the tip of the iceberg. We have so much more to think about and talk about and and pray about actually about who God is calling us to be in this in this uh, issue and in this aspect and and in this who we are. I mean. This is all about who we are as people and who God has created Absolutely. us as people. Absolutely. It's, it's claiming the wholeness of who we are. Well, thank you once again for being willing to talk about something that it could be slightly uncomfortable to talk about and for doing so with, with humor and grace. And man, I literally cannot wait to pop open my Bible right now. <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't want to get in the way of your Bible study, Carla. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you once again for joining us. And uh, yeah, we look forward to our next conversation. Great. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Project Zion Podcast is a ministry of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.